Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Good morning, everyone. So glad that you're here this morning. Good morning to all of you watching and listening online. Good morning to you also up north in Port Perry. We're so glad that you are with us this morning. As we come now to the end of Jude, I'd like to begin by asking, what makes something something? What makes a dog a dog and not a cow? What makes a goldfish not a human? What defines one thing that does not allow it to be another thing? If you go this afternoon after this service to McDonald's and say, I would like a Whopper, they will look at you and say, get out. If you go to Burger King, who does that? But if you go to Burger King (laughs) this afternoon and you ask for a Big Mac, they'll say, you're in the wrong place. I remember a year or two ago, I was with uh, one of our elders. We were having a meeting, and we went to Starbucks. This is not what he usually did, and he walked up, and we were in line, and he said to the barista behind the uh, counter, I would like a medium (laughs) double-double. The whole line went quiet. It's like talking in an elevator in Toronto. You do not do that thing. And so I looked at him in horror and had to translate quickly for him what he really went. Now, if I went to Tim Hortons this afternoon, went through the drive-thru and said, I'd like a 180-degree blonde flat white, they would go wrong place. Now, here's why I'm bringing this up. We all know certain things belong in certain places and they're not available in other places. And yet, as we've been learning through Jude and wrestling through Jude, we have realized that there is a great danger when so-called Christian teachers come and say, you can get a Whopper at McDonald's. Time Magazine this week, did you see the front cover? The question is, is truth dead? In a post-truth, alternative fact, fake news world, Is anything true anymore? Can anything be defined anymore? Is the sandbox available anywhere anymore? And so as we come to the end of Jude, we are going to one last time dive in and ask the question, what makes Christianity Christianity? And what things, when you walk away from it, no longer is Christianity? Now, if you've been joining us for this run over the last two weeks, some of you are like, man, I'm really glad this series is ending. You're like, John, is there any good news in Jude? Yes, of course there is. Never forget that this little letter, though very tough and culturally offensive, fork in the road making, is written against so-called Christian false pastors and teachers, but it is written so we can be faithful and we can actually know what true Christianity is. So as we come now to the end of Jude, Jude moves us and shows us and leads us as everyday normal Christians how to stand, how not to be seduced, and one last time is going to show us at the very end of his little letter the beautiful and the life-giving and the stunning work of the gospel of Jesus and the amazing truth about our God. But before we get to this crescendo, this beauty, this power, one last time, Jude says, I need to talk to you about these false teachers again. He says in verse 17, dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. 
They said to you in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. Oh, he said, don't you forget, right? Jesus talked about this. Paul talked about this. Peter talked about this. I've talked to you about this. The Old Testament is full of this. And they all said beyond their actual false teaching, there will be one thing that marks a so-called Christian false teacher. They will scoff. They will laugh at you. They will pat you on the head and say, isn't that too bad for you? They will mock you. They will rebuke you. They will say you are so out of touch, so traditional, so old-fashioned, so hateful, so ungrace-filled. They will use words like this. You are on the wrong side of history. They will say things like, we need to connect with God and the faith of God needs to evolve to keep up. It says in Jude 19, these are the men who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. Jude comes along and says, you need to understand this. They, they say they're under grace, but there, there are no signs of grace in their life. See, they say that it's okay to be natural and live in our instincts, but the Bible says we're born into sin. Our natural instincts are not good. We're not born good at all. So these so-called Christian teachers come and they teach, it is good to follow what you are naturally inclined towards. They say we have the Holy Spirit, but their teaching and their actions prove that they don't have the Holy Spirit. Not everyone who claims to be spiritual is spiritual. And where the Holy Spirit is, the Bible says, so the Lordship of Jesus is encountered. Where the Holy Spirit is found, there is freedom, but that freedom is actually being conformed to the will and the word of God. Remember what Paul wrote in one of his earliest letters, the book of Galatians, and you will see the difference between false teachers and true teachers right here. It says in Galatians 5.16, he says, so I say, if you're a Christian, you walk by the Holy Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit is what's contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other, so you are not allowed to do whatever you want. And then he says, well, okay, what are the acts of the flesh? What is the evidence of our natural instinct that is without God? He said, oh, it's obvious Sexual morality, it's the very thing that in Jude, these teachers are saying, okay, he said, that is a sign of anti-spirit. Impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, Paul writes, as I've done before, that those who celebrate this, relish this, continue to live like this, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. So remember this, Jude is coming along and saying we need to be very careful of false teachers. These false teachers in Jude's context are saying it's okay to do what you're naturally inclined to do and God's okay with it. Paul comes along and says, and so does Jude, if you hear teaching like that, it is not of Christ. It is not of the Spirit. It is anti-Holy Spirit. So here's the question, C4, how do we prepare How do we stand on guard as a person, as a family, as a church? How do we move from Jude's preaching at us and alongside of us and calling us to remember, to personally remembering, and then acting out of that? Well, Jude says, I've got a plan. He says, there are some very simple steps that I would want to teach every one of you that will become the bulk word, the guardianship against false teaching. 
And he says this in verse 20, but you, dear friends, build yourself up in the most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Dear friends, true community, you by yourself, we together as Christians must maintain the faith we commonly share. You must own your faith. You must secure your own spiritual condition. And we together must choose not to be seduced. And so the question, how? How do I, how do we at C4 do this in an ongoing way without being paranoid all the time? How do I guard, here's the old word, against heresy? How do I see and then acknowledge and then identify and then reject and help other people say no to false teaching? How do I know where the sandbox is? What makes it Christian and what makes it unchristian? First thing Jude says is build yourself up in the most holy faith. Now notice, he doesn't say holy faith, he says holy faith. There is one message, one holy faith, not many. It is a unique message given to humanity, and it's the only message that has divine transformational power. It has been handed down from the prophets and the apostles. So let me preach this again. Where is the holy faith found? Where is the teachings of Jesus found? Where are all the revelations of God's stories found and his thoughts? Where are his commands and his promises found? They are found right here. They're found in the scriptures, the written word of God. Jude says basically this, study God's word. It is the center, it is the foundation, it is the roof to be built up. This is where we find, this is where we know, this is where we experience God in his fullness. And remember, our belief as Christians is God is not vague and God is not trying to give us three meanings. God has decided to give us words that we can understand. And as we understand, and who he is and what he's calling us to do, we lovingly choose to conform ourselves to the doctrinal and the ethical core of the Christian identity. This has been the pattern since the beginning, Acts 2.42. The first thing that marked the church, they devoted themselves, what? To the apostles' teaching. Acts 20.32, I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and it is useful for teaching us, rebuking us, correcting us, training us in righteousness, so the person of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This next one's my life verse. First Timothy 4.16, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you'll save both yourselves and your hearers. Now this last verse brings home something so important for us as we end the series. Because false teaching and so-called Christian right living and wrong living is defined here. See, false teaching can appear in life and in doctrine, in experience and in our thinking. Now, if we're going to be honest today about false teaching, let me go beyond where Jude goes. And let me tell you, there are always three areas where false teaching appears in local churches. The first one is this, false ideas about who God is and what he's done. The second one is false ideas of how you meet God and get salvation. And the third one is false ideas about how one gets to live after you've met God in a real and personal way. So you could call it right thinking, right gospel, right living. Now, Christian false teachers will teach you to violate, to break, and to change the ethical and doctrinal core of the Christian faith, and they will tell you it will still be called Christian. You can go to McDonald's and ask for the Whopper, and it's still McDonald's. And Jude, warned, is to be forearmed. 
So some of you are like, okay, John, walk this through. I need to know where the sandbox is. What are the non-negotiable truths about God and what, is he, what, is he, and what he's done that can never be changed that, that, that I know are Christian. And then, okay, what's the other category where we as Christians who can sincerely love each other but disagree and be family because they're secondary issues? Well, the best summary, like I've preached before, is the Apostles' Creed. It was written somewhere between 150 and 300 AD, and it is the best mini-summary of the Christian faith. It is the non-negotiables of our faith. Oh, we as churches, as we read the scriptures, might differ on spiritual gifts or the role of women in ministry or church style or worship styles or how we govern a church. But these things that I'm about to speak to you on are the red line. They are the Rubicon. They are actually the sandbox. If you do not believe these things or a teacher tells you these are not true, you are, they are not Christian. They are something else. Here's what it reads like. I believe in God. The Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, and buried. He descended to the dead into hell. On the third day, Jesus rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven. He sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, where he will come back to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. And anyone want to say that last thing? Amen. All right. Mm, Amen. Now, yes. Now, hear this. Let me break this down to you this morning because it's critical. We believe in God, not just many gods, one God. We believe in his existence, but the scriptures are clear. There is only one God. His name is Father, and that implies that God is involved, He is relational, He is knowable. This makes our God different than others. He is not distant, He is close. When Jesus shocked His contemporaries, He did it by using this name. He called the creator of the universe, Abba, my daddy, Father. God is a knowable God. Are you glad about that today? Not only is that, it implies that he is involved. He is not some clockmaker who walked away and wound up the clock and said, I'm out. I hope the laws work out for you. He is intimately involved in his creation. He is almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-seeing, all-sovereign. He is the creator. He is the beginning point of what we know as creation and existence. But notice the creator made the heavens and the earth, which implies that the natural and the supernatural are not opposed to each other. They actually make up capital R. Our reality. We as Christians believe in Jesus who is the Christ. The Jesus of history is the Jesus of faith. He is God's one and only son. There is only one incarnation of God in human history and his name is Jesus. And since he is God's son, that implies he's equal with God and thus he is, is God. And you're like, how is that possible? Because there is only one being who has that DNA. And if you share that DNA, you are that being. Only God has his own DNA. Jesus is Lord, meaning he is king, and he's conquered all things. We as Christians believe he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. God has come for us when we could not get for him, get to him, but he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, meaning he is without sin, and he does not appear human or adopted some human being and was in him for a moment. No, Jesus is fully God and fully human, and God has entered into time and space. We believe in the virgin birth, which allows for Jesus to be without sin and points to the ongoing reality of miracles. 
Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. Our faith is rooted in actual historical events, not myth. We are not afraid of history. We are not afraid of facts. We are not afraid of science. Our faith stands intellectually also rooted in great history. Jesus was crucified, he died, he rose again. We believe that Jesus actually got killed and three days later he physically rose from the dead. It says that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, which means Jesus has overcome all sin, all of death, and all of the demonic, and he has the final say on all things. It says that Jesus will judge the living and the dead. All people, no matter their religious or non-religious backgrounds, no matter how sincere or unsincere, every human being that has ever existed will face Jesus Christ at the end because he is God in flesh. We believe in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the force. The Holy Spirit is not some thing. He is God. He is part of the Trinity. He deserves to be worshiped. He is equal with the Father and the Son. We believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Some of you go, oh no, we don't. Oh yes, we do. We believe in the church because the church is the living body of Christ, holy meaning forgiven, and Catholic meaning universal, spanning time, race, gender, culture, and even life and death. We believe in the communion of saints, that is the gathering of the church. We believe with our whole hearts in the forgiveness of sins. We are made clean by the work of Jesus alone, which he did on our behalf. We believe in the resurrection of the body. We believe that spiritual is not over physical. We believe that every human being that has ever been made will be physically raised at the end of time, and all who trust in Jesus will live in eternal life with him, and those who do not want Jesus will live separated from God for eternity. Now, we need to understand this. This is the baseline, the foundation, the core of the Christian faith, and if you do not believe these things or confess these things, you are not a Christian. If any teacher comes and says these are not true, they are not a Christian. These are undisputable for 2,000 years in our most holy. This is the holy faith passed down. Now, that's the doctrinal sandbox. Now, there's a second thing that's just as much of an issue, and it's this. Another group of false teachers have all of that right, but they will come to you and say that you need to add things to love God. So they will say that, yes, you need to trust in Jesus alone for salvation, but also you need to earn your salvation. So you need to do a lot of good works and being really moral, really Canadian, and really nice, and then God will love you. So it's Jesus plus you equals salvation. No. The Bible is clear in Ephesians 2.8. It is by grace we get saved through faith. This is never from yourself. It's always a gift from God, not by works, so no one can boast. It's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And if anyone teaches you that to get salvation, you need to work real hard, it's false. If they say you need to live a holy life because you've met Jesus, oh, that's absolutely true. Holiness, the signs of good works, are evidence of the encounter. Now, the last one we come to is wrong lifestyles under the Christian banner. And this is where Jude has been taking us for the last two weeks. As we've talked about this whole series, the idea that you can have right belief, you could confess the whole Apostles' Creed, and also say, I'm saved by grace alone, by faith alone, through Jesus alone, and then say, I can live any life I want in any form I want, then that is false teaching. Remember what Jude said in Jude 4, these are godless men who deny the grace of our God, they have, sorry, they have changed the grace of our God into a license for immorality and they deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. 
let me preach what I have for the last two weeks. They started teaching 2,000 years ago that trespass, that sin, is okay. And you as a Christian have the freedom to do what you want, how you want, where you want. You have the right to do it. Yes, sin is wrong, but don't worry. Jesus has covered it, and so you can now live a free life in any way you want to do it. They twist God's free forgiveness into sin. They say, since you have God's forgiveness, there is no more penalty. This is how they deny the sovereignty and lordship of Jesus by saying immorality is okay. And like I've been teaching you for the last two weeks, that word immorality isn't just some vague, undefinable word. It is actually a very specific word. You look it up in the dictionary, it has a meaning. Peter used the exact same word in 2 Peter. Now, immorality can have three meanings. It can mean greed, worshiping other gods. But for Peter and Jude, it has a direct sexual overtone. It's lustful passions, longing after what is forbidden. Read the Bible. I'm just going to preach this again from beginning to end. And there is a unified biblical worldview when it comes to sex and sexuality. Sex is given from God. God invented sex. God thinks sex is good. God, was, God gave us sex for pleasure. He gave it to us for procreation. He gave it for us to express love in each other. He, he, it's an amazing thing. But like I've preached, like a mighty river, God our creator has put banks beside this great river called sex and when the river overflows it causes damage now for Jude and I want to say this this is Jude speaking not John speaking this is Peter speaking not John speaking this isn't C4's opinion this is literally what the text says for all the sexual uh, all the writers in the scriptures Moses Jesus Paul Jude Peter the sexual starting point for them is Adam and Eve before sin entered the world that is God's picture that is God's want let me use a word that's controversial it is God's design it is God's gift and it is God's limitation and when we step out of that limitation God in the scriptures declare that as immorality But these teachers come along and say, Jesus is great. Jesus is God's son. Jesus died for your sin. Jesus took the bullet. You have grace. So now you can live sexually any way you want because Jesus actually is love and he would never deny you what you want. But when Christians look at the Bible, and this is to Christians, and we hear what the word of God says, and we know our God has the right to say what he has to say because he's creator, and then we decide that self-will and self-rule and self-exaltation is better than God and his word, that is when false teaching becomes so troubling. By preaching a Christian life without lordship, they teach grace without life change. And Jude, as we found out last week, remember these sermons are like Lego all connected together. Jude took time to point out six different Old Testament examples of what false teaching looked like. Remember, he talked about the people of God in the wilderness and not obeying by going to the promised land and angels falling from heaven and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and the battle of Michael and Satan over Moses' body and Cain and Balaam and the rebellion of Korah. And what Jude simply was saying is this, there are consequences if you have God's word and you choose to go against it. Actually, what Jude is saying is hauntingly written today over Dachau concentration camp near Munich. Those who do not hear from history are condemned to repeat its mistakes. The message of Jude is clear. God in his love and in his power and his glory and his might has given us his word. God has been clear about who he is and what he wants and how you meet him. 
He's been clear about his boundaries and his loving desires for us. And remember, he has the right to place these boundaries where he wants because he is the creator. It's what was found in the Old Testament. Can the clay say to the potter, you cannot do that? Yet in all the above examples, God's people that Jude talked about last week, And their so-called teachers had God's word clearly. They rejected God's word and there were consequences. They knew the creator God's boundaries and they said the boundaries were wrong or muddled. And when they taught that you could break these boundaries, they also taught the people there would be no consequences. But Jude's point is there were consequences. Another simply wrote this thinking about Jude. Those who failed to learn from Israel's history and those who dare to forge beyond the apostles' ministries, they are the ones who stand condemned by God. So false ideas about who God is, false gospels, and false, notice the phrase, Christian lifestyles. So the very first thing Jude tells us is this. You must know the holy faith that has been passed down. How do you know the holy faith? You study the word of God, acknowledge its authority, and know that God is speaking out of holiness and out of love when we read it. But then Jude says there's a second step, and here it is. He says, pray in the Holy Spirit. Now, this phrase, pray in the Holy Spirit, doesn't mean speak in tongues, though it doesn't say that's not against that. That's not the point here. All prayer is praying in the Spirit. Remember the context. Jude understands that the battle against false teaching is not won by an argument alone. It must be a literal act of God to overcome the evil one and to convict us and show us where our own thinking actually is sinful and wrong. This is not going to be won intellectually alone. This needs to be an act of God where the Spirit of God enlightens a person's mind and says, actually, I know you even think that's Christian. It's not. Repent. This is why Paul, at the end of that great passage in Ephesians 6, preaching on spiritual warfare, ended by saying, and pray in the Spirit, the exact same phrase, on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests, and with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for the saints. Jude says, you want to make sure, C4, that you are not seduced by false Christian teaching. Number one, know your scriptures and lovingly obey your scriptures. Number two, pray into the battle. And number three, he says, stay close to Jesus. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you into eternal life. This is a call for every one of us, whether you're a teenager here this morning, a junior high, a young adult, an adult, no matter your age, we are all called to keep walking in God's direction over a lifetime. It's called perseverance. And Jude says, remain, keep close in God's love. Actually, remain in the sphere of God's love. Remember what Jude started his whole book with, verse 1, to those who've been called and are loved by God the Father already and kept by Jesus. He's saying you're already elected and called and kept by Jesus. Keep in the keeping of Jesus. Remember what Jesus said in John 15, as the fathers love me, I've now loved you. Now what? Remain in my love. Well, how do you do that? Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command. Now we need to cultivate a love relationship with God. And how do you remain in the sphere of God's love? Well, as we've taught here many times in many series, the way you keep cultivating a healthy relationship with God is through holy habits, spiritual disciplines. They are the only ongoing place of transformation post-encounter with Jesus, how we walk with God. Remain with Jesus through the disciplines. This is so critical, and many of us 
miss the power of this over a lifetime. I've been married now for 17 plus years. If I knew what was coming in 17 years, we'd all have second thoughts because marriage is wild. It makes you happy, and more, more of the time it makes you holy than happy. Here's the point about marriage, and this is not new information. If I don't remain in the sphere of my wife's love, there will be trouble. If I do not continue to date my wife, there will be trouble. If my eyes wander somewhere else, there will be trouble. Trouble. If I remain dating my wife, who I'm already in relationship with, already have covenant with, already have a ring on, there will be difficult situations, but there will not be trouble. And so the point is this, I continue to date my wife so the marriage and the relationship I already have remains healthy and centered and does not veer to the left or right. These false teachers were coming along and saying, you've married Jesus and now go have as many affairs as you want and Jesus is going to be just fine with your marriage. We all go that that would never work in a human relationship, but for some reason, many of us, because God is not seen, think we get away with No. Remain. Keep dating the one who you love the most. He says, number one, know your scriptures. Love your scriptures. Number two, pray. Number three, remain close to the one who has saved you. And then number four, he says, you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Now, by the way, this is incredibly important. What I'm about to preach here is like unbelievably important this morning. Jesus is coming back. Do you believe this? Like he actually is going to split the skies and he's going to come back. And amazingly, what the Bible tells us to do is we are commanded to actively wait for his coming. Why? Because Jesus' return is the grounding of Christian hope, but Jesus' return is the grounding for our obedience. His return is one of the major reasons why we will be moved to obey and not given to false teaching. Because Jesus, when he returns, will be full of love and holy fear. Let me just bring this home to all of us. Christian, if you are one this morning, do you understand that you truly, for real, for real, are going to face Jesus face to face and give an account of how you've lived your life? We're not talking about salvation in heaven and hell, but Paul is explicitly clear about this. 2 Corinthians 5, 6. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we're at home in the body, so we're here, we're away from Jesus. We all live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, we'd prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. By the way, that verse is not true of many of us yet. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we're at home in the body or away from it, for we must all appear before the oh, judgment seat of Christ so that each of us as Christians may receive what is due us for the things what we've done in the body, whether good or bad. See, here is what Judah is saying. Here's what Peter is saying. Here's what Paul is saying. It is worth saying no 
to the things you want to do that are not right. It is worth obeying on this side of eternity. It is worth giving up what you want to believe is true, but God says is not true. It is worth giving up what you want, what you desire, what you believe could be right but is not right. It is right to act right and to conform to God, our Creator and Savior, because when He comes back, He is better than anything we'd fool around with on this side of eternity. Jesus' return and us facing him is one of the most important factors of living a holy life. But if you do not live your life as a Christian like Jesus is really coming back, you will be susceptible so quickly to compromise and false teaching because you don't really, really, really believe that how you act and how you're thinking affects eternity. Now, in the middle of all this, this is where churches go sideways, just like this. This is actually what's happening across North America. Now Christianity is in the margins and not in the center. Now we've lost power, whatever that means, and now we're just left with us. Now actually Christian worldview is sort of not liked as much. So we go, oh my goodness, you know, like we're on the edge of society and there's all these false ideas and all this sexual opportunity and all this pressure and and there's wrong gospels. I know what we should do. Let's all just hide. Let's just run away Let's rebuild the monasteries that used to exist in the, you know, the medieval times. Let's close the door. Let's live on the edge of society. Let's never engage. Let's just like stay in the background, be really faithful, and then just wait for him to come back and get us out of here. And Jude says, no. In the midst of growing pressure and false teaching and, 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 and everything that makes us nervous, he says that is the moment you do not run. That is the moment you run into it, not away from it. He says, let me tell you, let me tell you what I need you to do. He says, I want you, verse 22, to be merciful to those who doubt. I want you to snatch others from the fire and save them, and I want you to, to, to show mercy mixed with fear, actually hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. Now he says, okay, you, you want to understand there's the holy faith, there's false teaching, here's now how you respond, not just personally, actively. I want you to be merciful for those who doubt. Okay, hey, older Christian, you listening? Time to get your mercy on. Jude is saying that lots of Christians are struggling in this world with false ideas and false morals and false teaching, and when you see that, your reaction is not to nuke them and destroy them. Mercy means you actively go to a fellow Christian and you have coffee with them, whatever your style is, and you build a relationship with them. Here's some... Hear this, please. Some of you think behind every single doubt is some evil battle and a false teacher about to emerge. Stop it. Many Christians just need to talk about their doubt. Is the Bible true? How can Jesus be the only path to God? Why does God keep allowing suffering in this world? What about science and faith? Why does God seem to be so out of tune and touch when it comes to sex or marriage or love? The questions keep on flowing. So let me declare this again. I've done it before. At C4, we are not uh, against doubt. We welcome doubt. Doubt is welcomed in a church that's authentically struggling. Anyone want to say amen? Doubt is good. No question is wrong. No question is off limits. But here's the caveat we may not like the answer God gives us when he speaks. 
But you who are older in the faith, that doesn't mean you are 65. It means some of you are older in the faith and you're 25. Please come to those who are doubting. Don't be harsh. Don't be nuclear. Take the time and help them wrestle through doubt. And don't give pat answers. No bumper stickers in this church. We need real answers, not pat answers. Second thing, Jude says, I need some of you to snatch people from the fire. Now, this is a different group. These are Christians who are not just doubting. These are Christians who have started to embrace false teaching, false lifestyles, etc. Jude says, go to them and confront them. Plead with them and warn them that there are consequences to how you believe wrong and act wrong. He says, I need you to go and snatch them before it's too late. Pleading is the right word. Not this, this. And then he says, actually, there's another group I need you to go talk to. He says, I need you to show mercy, even though mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupt flesh. You're like, John, that's really weird sounding. I'm lost. Okay, this is actually talking about the false teachers themselves. He says, I want you to go to them and I want you to pray for them and realize that they're not the enemy, though they're blinded by the enemy. And I want you to see them through the eyes of my brother Jesus as loved and lost. And they also need to be told the good news of Jesus, though they think they know it. But he says, when you do it, be incredibly careful. Never get touched by their stuff. Paul put it like this in Galatians 6.1. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the, notice, spirit, should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves or you yourself might be tempted. By the way, that should be the life verse of every connect lever, every elder and every pastor in every church. So Jude says, okay, there it is, church. The beautiful salvation we share, the terrible work of false Christian teachers and how, how we handle it and how we do it. So he says, we're called to do this. Now, if he ended there, I'd be like, oh, okay. He says, no, no. He says, let me end where I need to. One last moment. It's like the Spirit of God lightened upon him one more time and inspired him. And he actually writes probably in the top three most significant benedictions in, in the whole Bible. It's like he lifts our eyes upward to inspire us, to give us hope and love, confirm God's calling, God's love, Jesus is keeping. But he lifts our eyes up to remember that it is worth worshiping this God because he's so beautiful. And I just want to say this as I come to an end. In a post-truth world, in a world where any fact is replaced by alternative facts, where continually in the church the sandbox is just changed to fit culture, Jude says this, there is truth. You can't compromise truth. It does not change. But as you're going through this, don't look this way. Look up and see the magnificence of our God. He says, to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and great joy. To the only God our Savior be glory and majesty and power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Anyone want to say amen to that? Now, here's what's so beautiful about this if you read it in the original language. To him who's able to keep you from falling, this, is a, this, this phrase is so, like highlight, circle, underline, hashtag it. This is so, it means this. Jesus 
is actually standing personal guard over you. Jesus is actually watching you personally. He owns you, and he's actually never going to let you go. So to him who's able to keep you, he's doing all this for you. And then he says, from falling. This phrase, from falling, is only used here in the whole New Testament. It comes from the sure footing of a racehorse that never, ever falls down. It's also used for the idea of a person who never has a moral lapse. And here's what he's saying. Jesus is going to keep you. Jesus is going to guard you. Jesus is going to keep watching for you. Jesus is going to keep praying for you. And Jesus, if you remain his, in his love, is going to stop you from giving in to any moral collapse. And then he says, if that's not good enough down here, he says, when he comes back, he's going to present you before God's glorious presence without fault and great joy. The only image I've got in my mind to describe the emotion of this is like Christmas morning. It's when the kid breaks out of the bed and is freaking out and runs and jumps on his parents and says, We've, this is just unbelievable. Like, it's that on steroids in a way I cannot even preach. Because when Jesus returns, he is going to take us broken people. He's going to present us to God as faultless. And the mark of the new heavens and the new earth is joy. And what does joy mean? It means, I want you just to get this. When you see Jesus... All the sin that has besetted you, all the temptations and natural inclinations we all have, they will never affect you again. All the momentary worries and all the family stuff and all the business stuff and all your lost dreams will never affect you again. There will be a moment where you will never think about a hospital. No one will ever get a cold. There will be no more drug dealing, no more prostitution, no more AIDS, no more gang violence, no more countries getting rubbed off by corrupt corporations. There is coming a day. We're going to look at him and the experience is going to be nothing but pure, elated joy because evil is gone and Jesus wins. That's the beauty of the gospel. It's what John pens, right? He's going to wipe every tear from our eye. No more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. That's why Jude ends by saying to the only God our Savior, be glory and majesty and power and authority through Jesus Christ. Now here's the point as we come to the end of the series. What is God saying to us as a church? A few simple things. <laughs> One, Remember, Jesus gave us this series preemptively. I started this three weeks ago by saying, am I preaching this because our church is involved in mass fault? No. Our sense as a leadership is as God keeps moving at C4 and thousands join us, they are going to come. This is a preemptive gift by God to protect the unity of the church. But there are a few things I need to mention. Some of you over the last three weeks, or even today, have realized you are a false teacher or you've bought into false teaching. And so it is my responsibility as one of your pastors, as a shepherd, to say to you, repent. Repent. Turn. If you heard me preach out of the Apostles' Creed today and you say that is not true, then either repent and say it is true or stop calling yourself a Christian. Repent. Conform your thinking to the Word of God. Some of you keep trying to work for God's salvation. Repent. Jesus said it is finished. Many of you in this church 
have heard me explicitly teach what the Scriptures say about sexuality, and you have not repented about this yet. Repent. God is telling us what His view is. You, I, we do not have a say at the end. Struggle, yes. Say no. And God has said to us from His Scriptures that if you teach a false gospel, a false lifestyle, if you teach a false God, there are consequences. So I'm begging you. I'm not doing this. I'm begging you. Go before God in humility and say, you are God. I am not. I choose to repent and submit to what the Word of God says. I want the Lordship of Jesus. Some of you need to repent. Is that you? The rest of us or all of us need to hear this. We need to walk in the way that Judas told us. Nor a Bible, obey our Bible. Pray in the Spirit. Keep in love with Jesus Christ through the disciplines. Live in the light of eternity. This is what we're called to do. But actually, as I was praying this week, this last thing was most strong with me, and I was sort of shocked by it. But let it just hear. Do you need to call somebody? Do you actually need to reach out and speak to someone and have mercy on them or snatch them out? Actually, it was interesting as I was praying, I was wondering, do some of you need to send this series to someone who used to come here or, or used to attend church? Or like, who is God saying to you that you need to go and have mercy on and speak to about these things? Because remember, God loves everyone so much He's even willing to have very difficult conversations with them for the sake of their eternity. Is the Lord giving you a name or a person? Then he's already set up the conversation. We're called to repent. We're called to guard ourselves. We're called to speak out and help people. But let me just end by saying we're called to live in hope. Don't run. Don't hide. Don't be afraid that our culture is so changing. Don't be afraid. Christians have lived through this before and way worse. Jesus will never leave us or forsake us. Jesus is not going to let us fall. Jesus is going to keep keeping us. Jesus is one. Jesus wins in the end. And that is why, in the midst of all this change, we must look up to the great glorious doxology that Jude gives us to remind ourselves of who he is and what he's about. So would you stand with me as we pray across here, all across Port Perry? And actually, I know today at both our sites, we're going to end with the same song. And we're going to confess and sing joyfully our holy faith together. But Lord, uh, lead us and guide us, we pray. Uh, Number one, Lord, some of us just need to repent. Lord, help us to repent and turn and find grace. Help us all as a church. We pray that C4 would be marked by what Jude commands us to look like. We pray, uh, Lord Jesus Christ, that you would give names to certain people to reach out to, no matter how hard it is. And lastly, Lord, we pray that you'd instill a supernatural, uh, undying, unnatural hope that Jesus is returning. He's got all things and he'll never uh, let us go. Continue to work out your holy faith among us, we pray. In Jesus' name and all of God's people said, let's sing our holy faith together. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.